Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Stein of Blondie. This is Roland Ozebal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts. When Bauhaus recorded Bella Lugosi's Dead, they didn't realize they were kickstarting a new genre called goth rock. The song had many influences, but one you may or may not have noticed was dub. Jamaican music was an important part of the melting pot of influences for the members. In fact, on their first batch of recordings in January 1979, there was a ska song called Harry. Today, we learn about the ska and reggae roots of Bauhaus by talking with bassist David Jay. His connection to the genres goes deeper than you probably imagine. I still can't believe we got someone from like a seminal, like goth band to be on a ska podcast. And uh, David J, the bassist of Bauhaus, had a lot to say on the topic of ska and reggae. I mean, we kind of knew that there was a, a ska connection there. Now we just got to find the ska connection with all the other bands from that era. All the other vampire-looking bands. <laughs> we know they got them. I love those vampire-looking bands. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that negatively. But the idea of uh, skanking vampires, yeah, that's the world we want. I'm into it. I have a friend who uh, who lives in Portland. His name is Jeff. And uh, he was telling me that somewhere around um, 2010, 2011, he saw you DJ at uh, the Lovecraft. Yeah. And uh, I guess maybe this was something you were doing at the time. I'm still doing it. I've been doing it for, for a long time. Yeah, I love DJing. He, so he told me that um, that you anytime he saw you play, I think he saw you a few times, there was always a couple ska reggae tracks in there. Yeah, I'd, I'd slip them in. What tracks do you like to put into your uh, your DJ set? It really depends what the other stuff is. You know, so it's complimentary. Um, but it's mainly, um, I do like to to focus on dub. And I've actually done, I've done some sets where I've, and I like to actually dub it myself, you know, and I use the, I use the controls there. And put echo on, reverb, and phase it. I love doing that. So I apply I apply that also to other genres. No, not just reggae. Yeah, dub out the sounds. And that's when it becomes more than just um, a selector. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's creative. What, so, what sort of outboard gear are you using for for uh, dubbing things out? Um, just a really really basic. I like the real basic. Uh, like the Technics um, uh, set up with the um, 
I mean, I used to go, it used to be pretty much exclusively uh, spinning CDs mm-hmm. with a, um, a CDJ. And, uh, but now I've most recently, I've really gone back to vinyl. And in fact, I pretty much exclusively now I'm just spinning uh, 45s, old seven inch singles. I love doing that. Um, but the, the mixer I'll use is just the basic, you know, it's sort of like the, a very basic um, setup. I can't remember the name of the thing. Um, but we're just with those those simple um, settings, you know, you can, um, like I said, like phaser, reverb, echo, you know, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. I don't get into I don't get into beat matching or anything complicated like that. But just adding that extra that extra layer, coloring it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What are some uh, ska reggae songs that you uh, like to throw in your mixes? What are some of your some of your tracks? I know, there's nothing that's really regular. I mean, I just mm, dip into a big pool, and um, it's pretty pretty spontaneous. Lee Scratch Perry is always a good one to go to, mm-hmm. and uh, King Tubby, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor Ali Montedo, Tapazuki, a great one. The only song my friend uh, Jeff remembers is he said you played um, "No No No" by Don Penn. Mm. That's a great track, and I, I've, I, there's also there's a French version of that. I can't remember who the artist is, but it's it's brilliant. It's a bit slower, and more sensual. Sometimes I pair those two together, and that's very effective. You go one into the other. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, no, no. I can't remember. I can't remember that artist. Yeah, it's a really cool version of it. Oh, nice. I like that. He said when he was there, like there'd be a lot of goths there. Very perplexed goths. <laughs> perplexed goths. That's what I wanted to ask. Oh yeah. But I kind of I have a sort of malicious glee when I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm putting I'm spinning these sounds that they're not expecting, you know, and I'm challenging them purposely. Um, but it's you know in a in a in a spirit of um, openness and and uh, expansiveness, you know, and I really hope that I my idea my ideal is to turn them onto this to music that they wouldn't necessarily be aware of and i have done that because some of them come around in the end and you know they'll ask me to, to tell them what that record was what was that and you know is that some sort of reggae <laughs> um yeah I, I really like doing that challenging their expectations in the extreme yeah Clearing the dance floor sometimes. <laughs> Other times, spinning it. Do you have a specific memory of like a really dance floor clearing moment? Yeah, I did a club here in LA, or oh, this was a long time ago, and it was real hardcore, real hardcore goth night. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that called? Mm, can't think of the name at the moment. Anyway, that was the scene. And um, I was playing all sorts of stuff. I was playing like um, the Beatles, um, Tomorrow Never Knows. I'm mixing that up with like, like I mentioned, Lee Scratch Perry. And adding dub effects. And I was playing things like Can. And uh, yes, really all over the place. And not a lot of what would be termed goth music um <laughs> but it was 
yeah, le- uh, things like um, Link Ray, Rumble. Um, and I had, and it was, I was up the top of, it was like a tower, and there was a ladder, and I had these, these goth kids, like, climbing up the, the ladder, like little pirates, trying to <laughs> usurp me. When I, <laughs> what, some of them didn't know who I was, and they didn't have that association, you know, they just thought, you know, I was some maniac, some old maniac, <laughs> up who'd gone into town and taken over. Um, and what is this? Oh, that's great! This is, you know, that's, this is this is inspirational, mate. And some, but some of them, are, like I say, that one as well. At the end of the night, I was approached by some kids, and they they were enthusiastic. They said, "Well, I've never heard music like this in this club, and we've got so many questions." And I said, "Well, ask ask away, you know." So I showed them my records, and they, I did turn them on to that that music. I think, like you know, before DJing became such a such a big business. Um, the, the DJ used to serve more of a purpose of exposing music. Mm. And, um, you know, I think maybe that changed a little bit when people like want like a specific experience from DJs Yeah, and they're sort of like rock stars now. But I think, you know, like in the older version of DJ, it's like bring the music to the people, you know, I think of John Peel is a classic example of that, you know, in England, you know, you're aware of John Peel, I take it. Yes, yeah. He was exemplary in that and turned on so many people who became artists in their own right. And and uh, he would champion, you know, the the uh, independent artists. And I always had great taste, you know. And then, of course, when he started doing uh, his own sessions, that was, that was really um, very influential. You know, we did, did a, a couple of sessions with him. Very, very um, productive. It's my understanding that um, when you were a kid, I think like David Bowie and T-Rex were the first artists to really inspire you to want to play music. But um, even before that, you discovered like reggae, rocksteady, ska. Yeah. And that was the first music that really connected to you. Yes. Very much so, yeah. So you, um, the, the story is I understand it and please, you know, like clarify if I'm wrong. You were like 13 and you were, you were going to some youth center in Northampton where you're from. Mm. And you found out that at that same club, there was like a, like a dance hall happening and you snuck in and kind of got yeah full glimpse of this music and this community and everything. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when, when the youth club ended, we would stay behind and sneak behind those, like a big stage and we'd sneak behind the stage, the curtains. And um, we just wait an hour, and then it became a skinhead disco, and all the skins skins would come in, <laughs> and they they turn all the light, the lights would go right down, and uh, they'd have pull these huge speakers into the place, and uh, just blast reggae, nothing else, and we would just slip in there, you know. And the skinheads would, they would be kind of amused by us because we were like, we were 13, 14, you know, and these guys were in their late teens, early 20s. They would buy us pints of beer and, and <laughs> go for our inability to, to uh, take these liquid libations. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, we would, um, they would do their dances and then like certain, you know, skanking, skinhead dancing. And uh, we would copy them in the corner, you know. But it's just hearing that music real loud in the dark was very potent. Yeah. And then, then the, of course, the rumbling bass and just how how powerful that was. And it, also the music was, uh, a lot of it was, music combined with shops. It was uh, from imports from Jamaica. Some of it was mixed. It was mixed with some some more um, known tracks, like Desmond Decker, things like that. But quite a bit of it was really obscure. Never knew what it was. It sounded great. The first time that happened, it must have been like a complete foreign experience for you. Yeah. Um, well, I heard reggae on the radio, pop, the pop stuff. And, mm-hmm. But this was different, you know. This was deeper. And obviously it was louder. And it was in the context of that environment. So, yeah, it was... Uh, it was a huge um, eventful experience. I think I read an interview too where you said that not this was also your first exposure to what would be called like a music community or a music scene. Yeah. Where people were united by a particular style of music and, you know, yeah. had, had fashion associated with it and all of that. Oh yeah, the fashion was really key, and uh, you know I dive full full tilt into that. You know things like uh, stay pressed trousers, um, two tone tonic suits and jackets, and Ben Sherman check shirts, Brutus shirts. Um, we would wear little uh, silk pocket um, uh, squares to be. It's very kind of sort of a dandified in a in a kind of uh, Spartan kind of way. <laughs> um, and we had the, like little um, diamante tie pins and pins to pin your your pocket square onto your black crumby overcoat. And then there was a fashion of wearing the football team that you supported wearing their their badge. Their stitch badge on the pocket, and um, yeah, uh, of course the uh, Dr. Martin's boots were very popular. Monkey boots as well. Also, uh, loafers with two tassels on them, white socks, and I never got. I never got. I never could go with the skinhead haircut, and I compromised, and I just had a very Short, close crop, which mm-hmm. then became the suede suede head look. So then all these these skins were having they were adopting that look, and they were they were kind of um, praising me, this kid, as the first suede head. <laughs> <laughs> you were the first suede head, Dave. Just because you didn't want to shave your head. Yeah, so I, it just became you know that was the look, you know. So I was also reading that I, I read this other account. I'm not sure if this was a, a specific event, but you went to like a, you guys went to like a Rasta's like sound system. Yeah. Was that, was that a one-off or was that like, did you also do that as well? Oh no, that was in the late seventies, early eighties. Mm. The Africa center in the middle of town near the bus station, Greyfriars. 
and um, we'd heard about this place, and it was we'd heard that police just left them alone because they were smoking ganja in them, but nobody nobody interfered with that because it wasn't worth their while. So it was like this temporary autonomous zone, and uh, we decided to brave it and go in one time, and we got a few funny looks. Because we were, we were literally the only white guys, us three, and one other mate. A few white women in there, but no guys. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> But it was like a cool atmosphere, and we no trouble at all. And, and they soon, people there, cottoned on that we were just into the music and the, the scene. And, it, and then, you know, I remember some, some guy passing us a spliff. And that's when we knew we'd been accepted, <laughs> you know. And, um, and then so we, we would go back there. It was like once a month. But they have some serious sound systems there. They'd also have goat's head soup in a big vat as you went in. And this, this funky aroma would assail your nostrils as you walked in. And that mixed with the ganja smoke. And it was just, and it was really dark in there. Did you ever partake in the, in the goat soup? Never did, never fancied that. <laughs> never really. Yeah. <laughs> um, white, uh, red striped beer from Jamaica mm-hmm. and the spliffs. And they'd really go to town with the, the decor, so they would they would redecorate the, the room. And it was a big room. They'd redecorate it for, for each event. So and they'd choose a color from the Ethiopian flag, and that would be the theme. And they'd paint the walls, you know, like gold, if that was the theme, or red or green. And then the women would dye their hair that color. And the guys would wear, like, a, a casual suit and a big puffy hat, you know, all, the, all in that color. Wow. So it was, like, it was really visually arresting as well. And just the whole thing of toasting was really big then. And they would have guys in competition and, and they'd just... Um, share the microphone and they'd play instrumental dub plates from Jamaica which they would dub out live and then these guys would just do their toasting over the top yeah it was, it was really great how full were the were these venues for this packed packed wall to wall yeah because there's a big rest fair in community in in, in Northampton and they 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 were the, they were the offspring of the the people that came over from the West Indies in the fifties. Mm. Oh, so most of them, or a lot of them, were um, like I'm born in Eng- England. Yeah, born born in England. Uh, you know, first generation. Yeah. Was the music louder than the skinhead clubs? Oh yeah, much louder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was wall shaking. Yeah. How can you remember the speakers? How big the speakers were? Oh, uh, like the size of a truck. <laughs> I mean, interesting. But it was like stacks of speakers, but they were all big. Right. But they went right up to the ceiling, and it was you know like oh, I can't huge, huge sound system. So if you wanted, if you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to go outside, <laughs> uh, or you went into the back. There's like a back area. That's where they had the goat's head soup. <laughs> okay, and all that. Um, you could hear. You could hear. Actually, you could. You could talk in there because I mean, the tonality was really on the bass end. Sure, it wasn't. It wasn't the high high end treble. 
somehow you can talk, you know, you can pitch your voice over that or through that easily, more easily. I'm just remembering the whole scene of going there. I used to go there with Pat Fish as well, the jazz butcher. And a friend of hers, uh, Mitch Jenkins, who become a rather famous photographer. And I remember one, going with him once in the 80s. This was like 85, something like that. And we noticed that it had changed. It was very interesting. And Pat actually mentioned it first. I noticed that it had changed, but he articulated it. And he said, the sounds are different. And they be- it become more electronic. It was just like electronic element creeping into it. Hmm. And uh, f- faster, the beats were faster, and it was coming from like dance hall, but it was, but it was, yeah, electronic. And that was that was uh, that was interesting. I didn't like it as much as what was what had preceded it. I liked it, but not as much. Yeah. Back to the skinhead clubs. Yeah. Uh, that you went to when you were younger. At those events, was it just it was just play music and dance, or was there anything else kind of happening? Um, there was a there was an, an undertone of bristling, impending violence, <laughs> yeah. which added to it. It really added, gave it a charge, because these guys were they were they were heavy, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and violent. But they were in their own group, so it was very unlikely that anything would go off unless some other rival skins came in. But nobody really um, fucked with them because they, they were heavy dudes. Yeah. And um, they would be sort of um, rather acerbic with us. They'd tease us, you know, kids. But it was kind of good-natured. But they would they would like break break our balls a bit, you know, <laughs> which is a bit of a test. Like it's a gang, you know. If you want to be even on the peripheral of this gang, you have to show that you you've got some you, that you're a bit tasty, as they would say. <laughs> <laughs> they appreciated the fact that you took an interest in it because pro- probably wasn't a lot of kids sneaking in and wanting to be part of it. They would do things like, because they had the skinhead girlfriends as well, and that was a particular look. It was like a, their hair was like a, like a grown-out suede. It's like a suede. Like the Chelsea? Like the uh, kind of bangs in the front? with the Yes, yeah, and the long sides, you know, and that. And they would have the two-tone tonic skirts and all that. I mean, they, I thought they'd look great. Um, but we would sometimes be jostled and pushed by their boyfriends. Yeah, go and dance with her. Go and dance with that bird. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> like we're very shy, you know. We'd make a half-hearted attempt. It's like, yeah, you're all right. You're a bit tasty. Have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you get too cheeky with my bird? Yeah. So the um the 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 imports from Jamaica those were like hard to find if you wanted to buy them, correct? Yeah. But um trojan there was they were also playing trojan records right and those weren't as hard to find yeah right yeah the first album i ever bought was uh trojan reggae chart busters volume two do you still have it mm. the metallic a metallic cover i don't have mm. that i, I want to get it <laughs> it's been on my mind to get yeah. that again and uh yeah and trojan put out some amazing stuff um but we'd go down to london to the reggae independent reggae stores down there like Daddy Cools and Green Sleeves, and you could get them there, and that was uh, that was a joy, just like on a weekend to go down on a Saturday and just flip through the vinyl. 
and get and they would play they would play anything you picked out and I got a lot of my 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 records that way and they you'd ask the guy in the shop you know what what was good what was cool they would happily engage with you mm-hmm. that first record you bought yeah any any tracks stick in your mind as like particular favorites oh god what was on there remember uh, montego bay mm. on it um long shot kick the bucket um return of django it was on there it was that kind of stuff sure yeah um the israelites i think maybe is on there it mech monkey spanner uh, the first first single I ever bought was uh, Dave and Ansel Collins' Double Barrel. And I found out years later that Daniel Ash, that was the first single he ever bought. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. That's a great sounding record. How popular was this music? Was it just sort of popular? It was very popular. It was really popular in England. Was it popular just with sort of, an, in, with like sort of the subculture or was it? No, no. I mean, it's really made uh, an impression on the charts you know and that was the, obviously the more commercial poppy side of it and but if you cared to dig deeper and then there was this whole other side yeah i mean i think most people just knew of the the, the pop stuff mm-hmm. yeah uh it's interesting like generationally though because i know a lot of the people involved in punk, they're, they're my age. Um, they they had a very similar experience to me growing up, being turning teenage and, and hearing reggae because it was all around, you know, and then going, diving a bit deeper of their own volition and discovering more, you know, deeper cuts in that area. And it's very influential on all those musicians. I think it was like, I think it's comparable to uh the way early rhythm and blues influenced the beat groups you know that uh black music but that was ours the reggae and somebody like don letts um who i actually met up with again quite recently um was a very um he was very instrumental in not really exposing people to to that music because they already knew it but to just um to sort of hold that torch and play reggae in the clubs where he DJed because there were very few punk records, you know. So it was sort of the punk records that had come out that week or week before, plus loads of reggae. And it worked. It was very simpatico. Yeah, so the the Roxy, this was like a punk club. and Yeah, the Hunter Club. Mm-hmm. The Roxy was his club, Don's. Yeah, so so this, he would do this like between bands too, right? So there'd be punk bands playing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of the punks of your generation grew up with reggae, but this sort of cemented the idea that these these styles of music belong together. Yeah. Also, it was um, it goes deeper because it's also socio political. It sort of led into rock against racism and things like that because you know the music obviously was made by. By uh, our black brethren, and um, it was like mm-hmm. saying, you know, these 
this race make this fantastic music, you know. The strange kind of, uh, with some elements in the skinhead community, there's some a strange um, contradictory element that they, they were anti-Asians, um, very much so, Indians. And it's really unfortunate, you know, but the, the um, West Indians, or those from the West Indian background, were praised because of their music. So you didn't have skinheads picking on on uh, kids that had come from that background, but you had certainly had them picking on and terrorizing people from like Pakistan and India. And there were a lot of a lot of people from those places in England. Wasn't the perception that um that the Asian immigrants were not assimilating or something like that? It was that and it's also this ridiculous thing that they were taking our jobs you know sure the usual you know fascist game plan you know to to use that and turn people against the other there was a thing called the anti-packy league was like sort of the brunt of that yeah yeah but then there was the anti-nazi league and there was a national front that came through as well and there were a lot of certain type a certain type of skinhead element in that yeah very, you know, right-wing fascist. Um, so did you see, did you kind of witness like um <clears throat> some ele- some amount of the skinheads turning right-wing and fascist? No, it was just a different element. They were different. I see. The ones that I knew right from the beginning were cool, you know. Did you go to any of the uh, Rock Against Racism events? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I saw the one with um, really big one with um, Elvis Costello. He opened his set with mm-hmm. "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding," the Nick Lowe song, which was so apropos. Uh, yeah, that was a big movement, a very positive. You know, really proud to have been there and part of that, supporting that. So okay, so I want to talk about you're one of the founders of Bauhaus, right? Yeah. Everybody wanted to play guitar in the band. So you volunteered to play the bass and you took the high strings off your guitar initially? <laughs> that, would that even work? I don't think that would even work. No, 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 no. Is that not a true story? Okay. <laughs> no, no, I did do that. But that was way before Bauhaus. That's when I was at school. Okay. And that was just the first, you know, silly, not even a band, just a bunch of boys, you know, just wanting to play some music together and and that was the case there. Everybody wanted to play lead guitar, and uh, ah. you needed a bass player. So I volunteered, and I volunteered because I loved reggae, and I knew that the bass was a big part of that. Yeah, definitely. So I did do that thing, yeah, with my cheap guitar and take off the top two strings, and uh, turned all the bass up on the happy amp, turned all the treble down. And I bet that sounded amazing, David. Right? It sounded bloody awful. but then you know i saved up my money did a holiday job and i got my first uh my first base what's that first base what did you get it was um quite bravery i mean it was a fretless oh wow it's a fender p fretless fender p fretless did it have any fret markings or just no i just really like the look of it Sure. <laughs> and the guy in the store, he tried. He tried to put me off. He said, "No, kid, you know, you don't. No, this is a whole different beast. You know, this is you don't want to go. You don't want to go this this road." <laughs> uh-huh. 
<laughs> uh, you won't know what you're playing. And uh, so as soon as I said that, I was like, dug my heels and I thought, well, no, I really do want it. I want that. I said, can I, can I try it? He said, no, no, you can't try <laughs> Come on. So I did try and as soon as I held this thing, I just, it felt great, you know, and it just, just sliding my fingers up and down and oh yeah actually I tell a lie I did have a cheap bass before that I can't even remember what it was it was just a horrible Japanese it was awful right just a monster with horrible action yeah I can't remember what that it's so horrible I blotted it from my memory <laughs> uh, yeah so when I got this Fender P it was like lu- uh, luxury you know because it was mm-hmm. a very, very nice instrument that's actually the guitar um i had all the way through Bauhaus and until it and love and rockets initially until it died a glorious death in flames and a fire <laughs> wait what happened here <laughs> oh it's a big oh it's a whole story man it was a fire rick, rick rubin's house we were rehearsing at his house okay we're staying there daniel and i and um there was a fire uh, i write about it at length in my book, in my memoir, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight. So if you really want that story, and it's quite, it's a hell of a story, pick up the book. It's all in there. Yeah. Go get the book. So your, um, your, your base idols were, uh, Paul McCartney and Errol Flava Holt. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, really. Um, especially Paul around about, uh, well, not round about, but the, on the Revolver album, mm-hmm. where he went with the bass on that. It's mm-hmm. extraordinary. Yeah, Paul McCartney as a bass player, I don't know if he gets the props he's due on that. It's because he's known for so many other things, you know? Yeah, he's such a good songwriter, but I mean, his bass playing, amazing. So And so, I'm, I mean, it's unpredictable, it's unconventional, it's super melodic. Or if it just needs to be really primal and simple, it is. Um, and I love that, you know, that's something I've always done is just this, whatever serves the song, if it's just one note, which is like on a track like um, Bear House's um, uh, Spine the Cow, it's basically just one bleep, bleep, you know, and that, that works. Yeah. It suits that track, you know. And other, other songs, you know, this can be a, quite a complicated bass line. It's whatever is whatever it's called for. But Flava Holt, I noticed, you know, I'd, I'd had all these records and I just started looking at the sleeves to find out who the bass player was. And time after time was him, Errol, Errol Flava Holt. So he's the man. Yeah, so the group is called Roots Radic and they backed like, hundreds of of reggae records basically yeah same band for you know countless different singers and and groups Mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit on what he did from a bass playing technical standpoint that you really liked it's so self-assured and it's just so laid back and in the pocket you know you just it just sits in the track Perfectly. No, it's. I think uh, someone like uh, Jar Wobble does that as well, and I really admire his playing. It's just steady. It's steady. That's Public Image Limited, right? Yeah. And then there are other players like Fernando Saunders who play with Lou Reed a lot. 
I really like his playing. That's a very that's a different style. Um, it's more top endy with some more fills, but it's always really tasteful and and soulful. John Entwistle was another influence. Great bass player. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's from the Who. Yeah, one of the first bass parts I learned was uh, my generation. That break in the middle it took me ages to get that down. <laughs> <laughs> Relearning it off of a record? Yeah, just playing the record. So you have to you have to keep lifting the needle and putting it back and Yes, exactly. Exactly <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. Bill Wyman, I think, was a really underrated bass player. Always played just what was needed. I think he was a huge part of the Stones. Yeah. So what was uh what was the role reggae played uh for the rest of the Bau- of the rest of Bauhaus? Were they all into the music? Um not Peter so much, but the rest of us, Daniel and Kevin, and we, us three, used to go to that Africa Centre, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Kevin and I were big into reggae and would listen to records together all the time, just hanging out at home. Um, and Daniel was into it as well. And he, Daniel really loves dub, and he, you know, he got a Wem copycat echo unit very early on. And applied that to his guitar, and knew knew how to use that you know, to great effect. And it was Daniel who operated the in-house analog echo box in the Beck Studios when we did Bella Lugosi. So that's Daniel. Just uh, Daniel at the controls. They're doing that live. One take, one pass. Is that a tape echo you guys were using for that? Yeah, we don't know what it was. I, it was it might have been a custom thing that mm. Derek Tompkins built because he built a lot of his own gear. He had recorded um, several reggae artists before you, and so wasn't it his suggestion to say, hey, the reggae artists, they like to come in and, and kind of manually add these effects, so why don't you guys do this to Bella Lugosi's Dead? No, we were already doing it. I mean, that was a big part of that, that the sound of that trout, but we were using the, the Wem copycat, and we were going to use that. And he said, well, before you use that, have a look at this thing. I've got it in, rigged up in the studio, so it's all set up. And he demonstrated it, and it was amazing. And he said, you know, because the rasters would come in and do tracks and make dub tracks. He played a couple of things that he'd done. So he knew what that was about. And so yeah. we just we seized this thing, this device. And that's what you hear on the record. Bella Lugosi's Dead is the very first song you, the band wrote and recorded, right? The first one we wrote together, yeah. I mean, Daniel, I joined the band last, and he, he and Peter had written a few songs, but that was the first group comp- composition, yeah. And uh, you you recorded it in one take, yeah. And uh, Peter had a cold during that recording, right? I think he did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also read that there was uh, one edit made uh, after the fact, and that was the the engineer fixed one of your mistakes. Yeah, I played uh, a bum note in there, and, he, and I've never seen anybody do this, but he stopped the, stopped the tape and got a razor blade out, and he was about to cut the tape, and I said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and Derek, who he had a pronounced stutter, he said, wah, 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 what am I doing? I'm trying to m- m- make you sound like you can play that b- b- bloody thing. 
<laughs> so that shut me up, and he just sliced away and dropped this note out and stuck it back together and then played it, and I was like, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, now now we can just do that with a push of a button. I know, it seems crazy now, thinking about it. Yeah. And you had to do the with the tape, you know, back and forth, find the spot. Yeah. Scrub it back and forth. At the time, did you feel like you were taking influence from reggae and dub in this particular song? Oh, yeah. You knew knew we were, yeah. So you kind of viewed this song as your sort of interpretation of reggae, dub reggae? Yeah, it's applying it, applying that idea. A lot of that must be in your bass line specifically, right? Uh, Not really, not on that track. It's not. It's not really a dubby baseline. It's just. It's a descending. It's a descending part. Um, and it's a. Uh, it's going back, back and forth between the the root note and uh, octave. Mm. Uh, and I'm actually playing chords on the beginning. In effect, it's not just one note. It's two notes. It definitely has. Like you can, you can hear the reggae dub elements in it. In the space, you know. There's that space in there, but it's more the guitar that's that's supplying that yeah. that um, dub element, and of course the drums are pure bossa nova. Yeah, I know the the bossa nova. It's weird because the beat sounds kind of reggae to me, but it is bossa nova, so it's kind of a well. It's probably because of all the echo that's been put on it. Yeah, and the the rim shot, you know, sound of that rim shot. You had I, the idea for the song lyrically because you had been watching a bunch of vampire movies. It was a season of horror films, classic horror films on TV. But Danny and I had both been watching, yes. And uh, we had, we were just, I, he called me up about, you know, when, when are we going to rehearse next, you know? And then we got into chatting about, oh, did you see that film last night? Uh, Bella Lugosi. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, that was great. You know? And then we were talking about that. Talking about how his accent really added to the, the mystique of the character. So that was in my head, and then the next day I was I used to work in this uh, warehouse packing up goods in cardboard boxes and shipping them all over England. And I had these labels in my back pocket, and I had a bicycle, and I was riding home, and that just it just came just bubbled up that that first line white on my translucent black coat back on the wreck and I just wrote it down on that one of these labels and by the time we got home I added the whole thing written there and then we had a rehearsal the next day that was that so you just handed the label to Peter and said sing this out the labels I, I transferred it onto a sheet of paper but <laughs> stuck it just stuck it in front of his nose you know and he just he interpreted it in the way he did incredible did you know right away that it was going to be a song that was nearly 10 minutes as you guys were going through this? Or did it? That was just the feel that felt right. It was the feel that felt right. Um, we knew it was great. We knew, it was like we scared ourselves. <laughs> it's like, what have we just done? What if we just... <laughs> what, what is that? You know? Every label besides the one that you landed with, which was Small Wonder, they were just like, this song's too long. Oh, yeah. But uh, but small wonder like got it. They understood that. Yeah, instantly. Pete Stennett, yeah, bless him. He saw it, you know. And even by that time, I mean, because we'd heard this so many times, 
it's too long, it's great, but it's too long, make it shorter. Um, we started to second guess ourselves by that point, and we said to Pete, you know, is it, we're getting this, you know, it's too long, should, should we edit it a bit? And he's like, really passionate, no way! No way! <laughs> he said, it's like, this is like Velvet Underground, Sister Ray, it's really long, but you want to hear every second of it. He said, it's yeah. all part of the magic of it. No way are you going to touch this. The first session, the session you recorded Bell Lugosi's Dead, I think, if I understand, it was a three-hour session and there was a, four other songs recorded. Mm, yeah. One of those songs was called Harry, which I think became a B-side. Mm. And uh, it's a song about Deborah Harry, or it references Deborah Harry. Yeah. It's got a pretty overtly ska-reggae feel to it. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Were you going just straight up going for like a ska song on that? No, we never really went for anything in particular. We'd never like discuss it. We'd just start playing together. And it would just calm out this 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 brew that would emerge. Um and Daniel started that one off with a he just started doing that upstroke. Although knowing reggae it's a downstroke. I think he was doing an upstroke, you know. And sh- and Kevin just joined in, and and Peter, he was sort of kind of writing those words at, at the time, and I joined in, and it just all just naturally came together. That's like all of our stuff was like that. So mostly just writing by by jamming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you know the story behind why uh, the song was about Deborah Harry? I think well, Peter had a bit of a thing about her, like we all did in those those days. <laughs> but uh yeah it's kind of a bit of an abstract take on debbie harry sure yeah it's sort of like talking about the new york scene and which we were fascinated by just the whole idea of new york at that time when we finally did get to new york it was not disappointing (laughs) how so it was amazing, 1980, New York City. Um, you have a picture from, from films and TV and photographs and music. And quite often, that when you go to the actual place, it can be a letdown because it cannot live up to the fantasy or the representation in media. But this exceeded it. It was, it was just like the ultimate city. And the, we were staying in this, this a cheap rock and roll hotel. Yeah, Iroquois, just off of Times Square, and we went straight to the bar, of course, pulled up for stalls, and there was one other stall, and we are just having a beer, and then we are just uh, chatting quietly, and then we hear, well, we see this, the guy comes in, this little guy, and pulls up a stall, and he, in this very distinctive voice, he, um, he says, oh, yeah, I'll have a beer, deep dark brown voice and it was Iggy Pop (laughs) (laughs) who was one of our major inspirations you know up there with Bowie easy sure so we were like it was like elbowing each other semi-discreetly so it's Iggy and he cottoned on he heard heard us saying that and he was like oh hey guys you look like you're a band are you a band What's the band called? <laughs> you know? He said Bauhaus. He said, Bauhaus? I like you know, Weimar, Germany, 20s. I said, yeah, well, that's cool. 
And then we just say, <laughs> we engage in this conversation. And uh, that was that was really something. I remember his huge eyes, his huge eyes. And uh, very impassioned, man. He said, you're um, sort of kind of baiting us a bit and saying, you know, you probably you think you're great, you guys, but probably not anywhere near as good as you think you are. Where are you, when are you playing? <laughs> so he said, we're playing tomorrow. And we had a little club gig, basically tier three. And then we were going to Chicago and um, and I think Toronto. And then we were coming back and playing down Soteria, which is a bigger venue. He said, well, I can't make the first one, but I'm going to try my best to get to the, the dance interior. Uh, I'm going to see you guys as good as you think you are. <laughs> and we were like, okay, you're right. Yeah. Not thinking he would. Um, but he did. We, he actually turned up. He was down the front, and he was heckling Peter. <laughs> what was he doing? He was just sort of baiting him, just sort of, come on, show me what you got, kid. Come on. Come on, motherfucker. <laughs> Show me what you got, you know, all that. And then when we came off the stage, we always said, that was Higgy Pole in there, down the front. And it's like, yeah, I don't reckon it was. And next thing we knew, the door bursts open, and then he comes in, like, doing a kung fu move. <laughs> and uh, he says, oh, guys, i got to tell you, that was great. He said, uh, I, I was passing the, the venue, and I see the name Bauhaus. I remember those guys. I, I say to the driver, park up the car. I'm going to go in and check these guys out. But they, they think they're great, but they're probably shit. So just keep the motor running because <laughs> I'm probably going to be in and out. He said, and I tell you guys, he's still out there with a the motor running, and I'm in here. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was great. Oh. Sure, yeah. New York definitely didn't disappoint. No, and just being on the streets, just walking around, just soaking up that atmosphere. And it, I mean, the, there's a lot of street art happening at that time, which was really vibrant. I mean, just going down onto the subway, and it was like a moving art gallery with all the the, uh, the painted uh, carriages, you know. Yeah. I just was just down there, just mesmerized by this, this flash of color and shapes. And, you know, it was like you know, the peak of that, that era. And then just the, the some of the street art, you know, that was up on the walls, you know, it's incredible. And just the smell of the place, it smelled like a city should smell. It's kind of, I don't know, it was in wind, it was in, um, in November, I think it was. And it just had this, like this, there was a crisp, crispness to the air, but then all that like steam coming out of the, the manholes and the smell of toasted, um, nuts on the corner it was really summer not entirely a, a bad smell no it's a great smell i love that smell <laughs> great like smell. A smoky yeah. city smell yeah i fell in love with it basically i fell in love <laughs> i love it before you had gotten to go to new york and you were really fascinated with this scene this new york punk like cbgb scene i assume oh yeah what what was your kind of idea about it did you did it just seem just fantastical to you Kind of fantastical, but you know, obviously, really gritty. Yeah, and uh, that and appeal in a very appealing way. So I went, I went to see the Ramones when they played first time in London at the Roundhouse in '76, and they were sort of they were the epitome 
for me, representative of what was happening in New York, you know, their punk scene. And that was that was such a great gig. Um, lots of the punk bands were there in the audience. Joe Strummer and Mick Jones were standing right behind me, literally. Um, so it's just that, just like this, you know, the mean streets, leather jackets and yeah. come on the sidewalk and rough and ready, <laughs> you know, kind of urgent rock and roll and just the flair of the individuals involved in all that, that scene. Paddy Smith was a big one. That Horses album was really, really impacting. And things like uh, Early Talking Heads, um, Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers. So Bauhaus, the Bell of the Goose is Dead, you recorded, I believe, in like uh, January 79. Later that year, uh, the specials release Gangsters and Two-Tone Ska just kind of, you know, becomes a thing in English. Exploded, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm really curious what your perspective, because Bauhaus is happening at the same time. There's all these different styles of music happening at the same time. What was Two-Tone Ska like in that landscape? Really exciting. We absolutely adored that scene and the specials in particular. Yeah, it was it was it was wonderful. You know, very complimentary as well. Talking about, I mean, they were talking about their lives in the same way that punk bands were talking about their lives. So it was very real. It was you know drawing from that music, um, but not just copying it and singing about things that are not relevant to your life. It's singing about things that are very relevant. So that made it very vital and done done really well. And just everything on that two-turn label was was really great. It was really well executed. The design of it, of everything, was great. The looks, the look of the bands, you know, the sounds. Yeah, really into that. Before the specials released Gangsters, were you familiar with the band when they were kind of in their formative period? Because they were developing for like a year or two, right? And originally called the Specials, a.k.a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very, very aware. Did you know them? No, no, but they come, they come from an area that's quite near to Northampton in Coventry. Just down the road, really. So they're Midlands boys. Did you go to see like, um, you know, did you go see these bands play? Um, uh, my, I know my brother did because he was really into it. I think he saw the specials with the opening for the Clash, and mm, dang. yeah, um, yeah, I didn't see any of them live, but I had all the records. It's interesting how well they presented themselves in terms of the fashion and the look. They they kind of all had it like it was seemed kind of like it came out the gate fully formed. Yeah, and yeah, interesting. Um. So, I mean, you guys were, I guess you guys were kind of different different worlds, but sort of overlapped with this sort of the larger umbrella being like this, the punk thing, maybe? Is that how it felt? Post-punk at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the music they, they were playing, like the specials, I mean, that's the music we would play in the dressing room before we went on to do a gig, you know? We played Scar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So wait, Bauhaus was listening to the specials backstage before they'd go out and play? Not the specials, but like Desmond Decker and things like that, you know, like early you know, like Jamaican Scar. 
um, Prince Prince Buster. That's like a beautiful <laughs> little uh, vignette in my mind. You guys sitting backstage listening to that before going out to play. Oh yeah, and on the road, you know, traveling and gig to gig. Yeah, yeah. I, I read that um, when you guys would record in the studio, or maybe it was one particular rec- record. I'm not sure that at the end of the day you would unwind by listening to either uh, late '60s Beatles or reggae music. Yeah, it's true. Main more reggae than Beatles. More reggae than Beatles. Yeah. And also, uh, also uh, like um, things like uh, like can like um, suicide, early electronic stuff, craft work. The amount of influence that reggae and Jamaican music had on all this post punk is so interesting. Like, essentially, the specials are pulling from similar influences and similar kinds of music, but you guys take it in a different direction. Bands like the Slits take it in a different direction. Yeah, I love the Slits. Yeah, the, 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 just the amount of the amount of this music with post punk, it seems like you were saying earlier, like R and B was a was yeah. a key ingredient before that, but reggae was sort of like yeah. such a fundamental part. Yeah, and you think of a band like the Pop Group, I think they they used it really well. Mm-hmm. And when they worked with uh, Dennis Bouvel, that was that was a great coupling. He produced the Slits as well, of course. Yeah. And Don Litz, uh, he managed them? Is that what his role was with the Slits? I think Don says he tried to manage them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. They were a handful, especially Ariel. Don, Don actually, he he uh, co-directed the Bauhaus video, uh, Telegram Sam. Oh, really? He couldn't be credited because of a union thing. Mm. Yeah. But that's when we we met Don. Oh, what was that like? Oh, it was great. He's a great guy. Very, very intelligent, you know, culturally aware. Great tasty music, of course. Did he use like a pseudonym then? He did in those days, but on that on our video, I don't think he's even listed as under a pseudonym. It was some weird thing with that. Uh, he didn't have, you know, he wasn't signed up. Sure. The union, or something like that. Huh. What was what was the pseudonym that you would use? I can't remember. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been a couple. I know David. We talked about David Bowie, big influence. Um, and later on, in like '82, you guys covered Ziggy Stardust, which I think that that song did really well for you, right? Oh, sure, yeah. So in '83, you guys met Bowie, right, on the set of the movie The Hunger. Yeah. I would love to hear what that was like. Was that the first time you met him? Yeah, it was. So you, he was in the movie. Uh, you you guys were on set just because was because your music was in the movie, or did you have a any other involvement? No, it's because they were using us the song "Bella Lugosi" um, and um, yeah, featuring the song. Uh, apparently, the director he asked uh, for Bowie's approval, and he gave a thumbs up for that to be included. Mm. So that was nice to know. To know that. Nice to know that David Bowie likes your song. <laughs> yeah, I like the band. He's Bauhaus. All right. Uh, Bauhaus are cool. He's the, I said apparently. Um, he was lovely on the set, and I think he was relating to us like the boys in the band, away from all the film people. You know. And uh, I had a I had a magic moment with him actually on that. You had a magic moment? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we're t- they were taking a break. They were setting up a, a shot. Pretty complicated scene. I think it was, it was actually the scene where you know they're in the nightclub, him and Catherine Deneuve. And it was amazing being on the set with Catherine Deneuve, who had a big crush on. So there was a, a wee, <laughs> wee lad. Um, anyway, his dressing room, which was directly opposite hers, was adjacent to our little holding area, as it were. We didn't have a dressing room. It was like a, an area. <clears throat> and in that area, there was a 1950s, well, it's a jukebox. Very well stacked with uh, 50s, 60s and 70s, 45s. And I was I was just there on my own, looking at these, these records, deciding what to play. And I, I became aware of this looming presence behind me. Very strong vibe. And I was just carrying on looking. And then I heard a voice pipe up saying, do you mind if I choose one? And it was him. <laughs> I said, no, please, oh, please. So I backed away and he, he starts to look. And he presses the numbers and he played Grooving with Mr. Blow by Mr. Blow. Instrumental from 1970. Do you know that? Do you know that song? Do you know that, Aaron? Uh, I... It's not. It's not ringing a bell. No, it's a great track. It's a great track. But Easter and Easter starts dancing in front of me, like <laughs> really full on, full on dancing with his arms up in the air, and just like you know, looking at me and smiling that smile, and I'm just sort of <laughs> sheepishly smiling back and nodding. It was so <laughs> surreal, you know. And he like he dances away, and and then I got. I think it was. Um, my hubris came from nervousness. Uh, I said, uh, this reminds me of something. And he said, oh, what's that then? Not not breaking his step, you know, carrying on dancing. So he said, uh, it's one of yours. <laughs> he goes, oh, what's that then? So he's off the low. He goes, well, come on, then what? I said, uh, a new career in a new town. And when I said that, he briefly stopped, put his finger to his lips and winked and smiled and then carried on dancing. Because <laughs> I always thought that that's where he cribbed that from. He, there's a particular a harmonica part in Mr. Blow that's just like on um, A New Career in a New Town. So I had a confirmation there, which was beautiful. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Did you have any other interactions with Bowie in your life? Or is that it? It was just that one day. But at the end of the day, it was rather touching because... We were, it's a long day and we, well, us four were just getting ready to go and we were hoping to say goodbye to Bowie, you know. And uh, he was nowhere to be seen. We thought, oh, he's gone. You know? We were a bit crestfallen, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So we just like picking up our bags. Then we hear like these steps running down the hallway and the doors burst open and it's Bowie. He goes, boys, boys, oh, I'm glad I found you. I just wanted to say it's great working with you. You know, really good band and I'd like to come and check you out live when I can, you know, if you're playing in London or wherever. said that, uh, good luck, and he shook everyone's hand, and he was just really wonderful, you know. He made that effort to do that. Yeah. So we were like, we were on cloud nine. But uh, to your knowledge, did he ever come to one of the shows? Not to my knowledge, unless he was in disguise. Yeah. (laughs) Lurking in the shadows. Run through the shadows. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> the top 
don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.